But now we're going to pray, and this morning our prayers will be informed. In the first part of our reading, we've got quite a long reading today, three chapters. So we're going to read chapter 13, then pray. Then later on we'll read 14 and 15 as our main Bible reading. And it says this. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria and into the hand of Ben-Harad, the son of Haziel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favour of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a saviour, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said of him, to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hand on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastwards. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it. But now you'll strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him 
Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now has your king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiahaz? But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Well, we'll pick up our reading from 2 Kings 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Johaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David, his father. He did in all things as Joash, his father, had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what's written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. But each one shall die for his own sin. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Scylla by storm and called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to Cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter, my son, for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that, you're f- so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem, broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did, 
and his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebot, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gathapher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria for six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, and struck him down at Ibliam, and put him to death, and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Shalom the son of Jabesh began to reign in the thirty-ninth year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned for one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Titzar, 
and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, put him to death, and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they're written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tiphash and all who were in it and, in it and its territory from Titzhar, because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it, and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for ten years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Paul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver, and he might help him to confirm his old hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back, and he did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with fifty men of the people of Gilead, and struck him down in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house with Agob and Eria. He put him to death, and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah, and all that he did, behold, they're written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 20 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Beth-Mach, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Allah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place, in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah, and all that he did, behold... They're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at this. 
before we do, let me mention a few things. Um, the first is, I don't know whether to mention this or not, so I will. Um, what we're going to do this morning is slightly different to what we normally do. Often when we do a sermon, there are three things going around. The first is probably exegesis of the passage. We're getting stuck in the passage and exploring what the passage is about. Then two of the things that are going on in the background is a systematic theology. How do we put the whole Bible together? And also biblical theology. How does the story Bible unfold? Normally the emphasis is on the exegesis and the other two are there in the background. Today we're going to bring uh, maybe a, th- a more systematic or thematic approach and have the other two playing their part there's a slightly different emphasis. Now, if that doesn't interest you, then just ignore it. For those who that means something to, it may be helpful just to see what's going on. But otherwise, don't worry about it. It all still makes sense. Um, and you know questions are coming at the end, so you'll be expecting that opportunity. And you know you've got a sermon outline to do with as you will. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that we'll be able to reflect upon today. And we thank you that we have this opportunity to spend time with one another, in one another's presence, but also reflecting on the truth that we see as we read your word. We do thank you that you do not leave us in the dark, but you are the God who makes yourself known, so that we might not only know you, but dwell with you. We thank you for the things that we've been able to reflect on as we've been thinking about the book of Ephesians. That Actually, the reality is we are in union with your son. Son, We've been raised with him and we're now seated with him. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things now, that will influence how we think about the things we reflect upon today. Amen. Now, I know that you know that I know that you know what a conditional statement is. But if I explain to you what a conditional statement is, then we will be on the same page, which is itself a conditional statement. It's any phrase that begins with, if this happens and ends with, then this will follow. And we've all grown up with conditional statements. If you do not eat your vegetables, then there will be no pudding. Or, if you do not do your homework, then you will have a detention. Now, the Bible is full of conditional statements. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. We could go further back, back to Genesis 2 verse 17, which is a conditional statement, though it's not written in the strict sense. The sentiment is something like this. If you eat of the tree then you will surely die. We also find conditional statements in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. So let's go all the way back to the very start. 1 Kings 2, 
verse 4. It says this. If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. We see a similar conditional statement spoken to Jeroboam before he is made king. Now remember, Jeroboam will be the first king over the northern kingdom when the ten tribes are torn from the house of Judah. So given that, we might be surprised to hear such a conditional statement given to him. We read of it in 1 Kings 11, verse 38. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what's right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, then I will be with you, and build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Now, what do we make of these examples of conditional statements? There are some people who imply that what is going on here is an example of the law being used as a means by which the participant can attain favour from God. So much so that each one could be paraphrased. If you follow my law, then you'll be rewarded. Now what I find difficult to understand is Paul is so scathing about even the suggestion that righteousness can be achieved by following the law. So it strikes me as odd that the Old Testament will be littered with conditional statements that present it as a real possibility. Can we really find it being advocated in these conditional statements throughout the Old Testament? I think there's something a lot more nuanced going on here. And in the same way Paul gives Abraham as the example, the example of the man who was justified by faith, well, had Adam demonstrated his trust in God by believing God's word and not eating of the tree, it would have been that faith that would have seen him righteous. But he didn't. He wasn't righteous because he didn't have the faith of Abraham. Or had the Israelites obeyed God's word because they believed he was the benevolent redeemer who brought them out of Egypt, it would have been that faith that would have seen them declared righteous. But they didn't. They weren't righteous because they didn't have the faith of Abraham. Or the kings of Judah, or the kings of Israel, had they listened to God's voice 
and trusted in him instead of idols, then why wouldn't their trust be accredited to them as righteousness, just like Abraham's? It wasn't because they failed to keep the law that they were declared unrighteous. It was because their faith in God was replaced with faith in those who are not gods at all. Had they had faith in God, they would have obeyed God's voice with the same enthusiasm as that of the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119. Or they would fit the description as given of the man in Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, if this is the case, well then where does all this confusion come from? I believe it comes from a false dichotomy. So let's tease this out. We have this conditional statement given to the kings. If you walk in faithfulness, then you shall not lack a man on the throne. Now if for a moment we incorrectly label that for the moment law... Then you have a promise like the one we had back in 2 Kings 8 verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamb to him and to his sons forever. We then label this statement, grace. What we now have is grace and law intention. But at this point, we can conclude, as one of the commentators did, eventually grace will win out over law. To which I genuinely believe this is among the most unhelpful and confusing statements that could possibly be made. Let's explore this a little further as we take a brief look at today's chapter. At this point in Israel's history, things have changed a little. They experience a period of stability. Now, the reason for this period of stability can be found back in 2 Kings 10, verse 30. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit sit on the throne of Israel. Now, to ask the question, does this fit under the label of law or grace, just continues to betray the absurdity of it all. Rather, the point here is, there'll be stability for Israel for four generations, because the same dynasty is going to sit on the throne. Now, when we pick up the account in chapter 13, 
Jehu's son, who's called Jehoahaz, he reigns over Israel. We read of how he's evil in the sight of the Lord. And God is attributed with the major defeats that they experience at the hands of the kings of Syria. But Jehoahaz does seek the favour of the Lord. And the Lord did respond by sending a saviour. It's very clear that Israel doesn't repent, but the king does seek deliverance from the only one who can deliver. That's generation two. Then his son, Joash's grandson, reigns and continues in the same evil vein. And his losses at the hand of Syria are great, so much so that he visits Elisha on his deathbed. We can see this in 2 Kings 13, 22-23. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Hazael, king of Syria, oppresses Israel, but that only goes so far because God is continuing to show forbearance for the people of Israel, and the reason on this occasion is given because of his covenant with the patriarchs. That's Joash, and he is generation three. Then we come to Jeroboam 2. Yet again, the king is evil. While the people of Israel gain great land, they're still described as being under great affliction. To which we read in verse 27 of chapter 14. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God continues to be patient with his unfaithful people. Jeroboam 2 is generation 3. We've got, hang on, Jehu. I've got this wrong. Jehu. And then Joash is generation 2. 1. Ah, Jeho has is generation 2. Generation 1. Joash is generation two, Jeroboam is generation three. It works out. Because then comes Zechariah, poor old Zechariah, because he's generation four. Which means he's conspired against, and a new but short-lived dynasty takes over. Now the stability is gone. And I don't know whether you notice it, but for the remainder of chapter 15, the king or his son is conspired against, and as quickly as a family takes over, another comes and replaces it. Now, if we wish to understand the book of Kings, pitting the law against grace isn't going to be the way forward. 
Just have a look back with me at 14 verse 3. This is referring to Amaziah. And he, Amaziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. And as we read through the book of one kings uh, and two kings, we read of a number of kings who were said to have done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David had done. There are also occasions when the kings are told that they walked in the sins of Rehoboam. However, despite the sin of the king, God continued the line of David because of David's sake. Because David did do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, with the exception of Uriah the Hittite. So just think about that for a moment. Which category do we put this in? Do we put it in law or do we put it in grace? So despite the sin of the king, God continued the line of David because of David's sake. Because David did do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, with the exception of Uriah the Hittite. Well, we don't want to include it in law, because that would mean David earned a reward by doing the right thing. But neither can we, with any credibility, put it under the category of grace, when it's because David did what was right. So what is more helpful is to understand that David is the faithful Israelite. David trusted God and served him. Because David believed him and he refused to worship idols in place of God. Just as Abraham had done. When David did sin... He repented and was blessed because his sins were forgiven, as attested by Psalm 51. Remember the key theme in the book of Exodus. Let my people go, that they may serve me. The people of Egypt are redeemed from slavery to Pharaoh. That's the grace, that's the redemption. So that they can serve God and him alone. The law is given so that they do not turn to idols, the very thing that they're guilty of doing. They, unlike David, are not faithful Israel because they turn from God and worship idols. But all this does raise the question, why does Paul make so much of law versus faith? And that's all because the Gentiles are to be included in the people of God. Not by following the law, but actually they'll be included in the same way as all those who'd come before them. By believing the promise. 
Abraham believed the promise of a son. David believed the promise of a son on the throne. The first disciples believed that the son was the Messiah. And we believe in the promise that their son died for our sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have made many promises throughout redemptive history. And those promises are true and are steadfast. We pray, Lord, that we pay careful attention to the promise that you have made through your Son, that if you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be faithful on that point, because that's where salvation can be found. We pray, Lord, that we'd serve you in light of all this. Amen. Okay, I hope that was helpful. Like I say, it's slightly different to what we've done in the past, so I hope it all made sense. But now's the opportunity for you to say, no, it didn't. Answer me this. Any questions? Yeah, good question. So, just to repeat for the recording, um, so how do we think about the sort of broad approach of 1 and 2 Kings? We're seeing both the acts of the faithful and the unfaithful kings spelt out. So, what's the purpose, particularly of the examples of the unfaithful and evil acts? Good question, yeah. So... um, I mean, first of all, I guess one of the things is this is how things happened. But that's not satisfactory But because actually you still have the position where the author can choose to leave things out and skip over things. He could happily skip over a few generations. So there's something, you're, you're right, there's some reason why he needs to include these to make his point. One of the things that I think is worth bearing in mind is that you've got these two parallel um, kings running through, uh, kingdoms running through. So you've got the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and the northern kingdom, which is Israel. And on the whole, what you begin to find is from the set go, Israel is full of evil kings. And that pretty much doesn't change. Whereas David starts off with 
you've got David and Solomon who were good kings, but then Judah's first two kings, I think, Rehoboam and Abijam, they're evil. And then you start off with good kings. So that, I think, is the first thing that's helpful, just to see there's a contrast between uh, the bad kings of, the evil kings of Israel and then the good kings, or some of the good kings in Judah. But then what you also get is when they, when you do have an unfaithful king in Judah, the reason for God remaining faithful to them, so you've got their unfaithfulness and his faithfulness, is the promise that he's made to David, that there'll always be a king on your throne. And we haven't quite got to the end, but when we get to the end of two kings, that's going to be vital. And of course, you can kind of anticipate what's coming because we know that Jesus comes from Judah's line. So that genealogy and that line and dynasty is really quite important. We're just about to get to... um, we're not too far now, I think, from the end of Samaria, as in the northern kingdom's going to fall. And when it falls, it falls because of their persistent unfaithfulness against God. Now, what's interesting when you then go and explore the prophets, and it's really helpful, I think, having just done one two kings, for those who do equip to serve, you'll be coming into Isaiah, And I think a lot of stuff will make sense that in previous years might not have done because we're not used to the history of one and two kings. But a lot of that is, look at what... I might get this wrong. Depending on which prophet you're reading, look at Samaria, look at what they're doing. Judah, don't think you're any better. Actually, you're just as bad. You're about to go the same way. So, I think the unfaithfulness and faithfulness is all there. There's quite a lot going on to make sense of why, um, in the end, Samaria is destroyed, or Israel's destroyed, and then Judah's sent into exile. And that's because... I guess the other thing, just one more thing, you've also got them this type and anti-type. So, we're looking for a king that's going to sit on God's rule under God. And for a king to rule under God, then he needs to be an obedient son. Because that's what they were. They were God's son as a Messiah. But of course, they weren't obedient. They didn't rule over their people under him. They took their people away. So again, you're getting this kind of like, that's not how it should be. But one day there'll come a king who is obedient to his father who is the obedient son, who will rule over his people under uh, his God. So there's quite a bit going on. Uh, I don't know whether that's helpful. Yes, Nikki. Yes, so um, can we explore this 
a bit further, just to repeat for recording, the sort of tension between law and grace and how we do think about David because it's not law because he, it was by grace, but it's not grace because he did do what was right. Yes. Um, let's come at it from a slightly different angle. I think, first of all, I think probably one of the most unhelpful things we can do is go and read Galatians or Romans and get this works and faith kind of thing and then go back to the Old Testament and try and find it in the Old Testament because I think that's we're going to come unstuck if we try and do that. Um, I think that's the first thing to say. And we're going we're gonna to explore this a little bit in the reflection because I think Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't say check out the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament it was all about um, getting salvation by works, or justification by works, but now it's faith by works, which I think is how, um, that's how people now can seem to make this division. So bear that in mind. Um, let's, let's go back to David and Goliath. So what do we know about David? When he stands before Goliath, he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. He knows that he's going to beat Goliath because he trusts God. And he knows that because that's a a promise that God has made back in Exodus. When you face your enemies, I fight on your side. So all that we've got there, very simply, God has made a promise and David has believed that promise. Now, let's go back to Abraham because he's the example par excellence. God says to Abraham, you will have a son. And what happens is that Abraham believes what God says. So his faith and trust in Abraham is credited to him as righteous. Now, just for the sake of completeness, and just so that we're not feeling uncomfortable, let's introduce that as well for both David and um, Abraham, some grace, because then we'll feel a little bit more secure. Let's go back to Abraham first, just because he comes first. The grace that he receives is God chooses him and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a nation that's great. In fact, I'm going to, it's going to be through you my redemptive plan is going to come about. And now Abraham hasn't worked for that grace, just to use those, that sort of language, but rather that is God choosing him. For David, we have to go a bit further back to where he's come from. That grace, we have to go to the Exodus. So once again, the people are in slavery uh, slavery in Egypt. And what God does is he redeems his people, brings them out of slavery. And if we want to find grace, that's where we kind of look to Um, So they have now been redeemed. They have salvation. What David is doing, what Israel could have done, and what Abraham is doing, is simply 
thinking, God is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. And so because of that, I'm going to trust him. And that's where his obedience comes in. Having been saved, salvation is established, as it were. The grace has been established. He's now going to obey him. Which is the same pattern that we adopt. So God has said, if you believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. Repent and believe because he is the king, the Messiah, the chosen one. To which we say, yes, he is that God is trustworthy and true. Where's our grace? Well, that comes at the cross because he died. That's how we trust. So the only tension, if there is any at all, is introduced actually when the Gentiles become Christians. Because, and this is, what, this is the thing I think we don't appreciate what Paul is engaging with. I don't think, not that we don't, but we as in the broader church. What he's engaging with is, does the Gentile need to be circumcised and follow the law to become a Christian? Does he effectively need to become a Jew? To which Paul says, no, because that's not how you become a Christian. What's interesting is, is he doesn't say, everything's changed Everything's different. He says, because look at Abraham. Right back at the start, Genesis 12. You just do what he did. So if we just have to do what he did, or David did, or any of the greats, it's just about believing and trusting God. Those two questions have taken me a long time, so if you're happy, we'll leave it there. I think... Uh, but obviously, feel free to well chat amongst yourselves first of all. But if you do want to come and grab me, I'll just be putting the drums away. So ask me then. We're going to uh, sing our next song, which is "My Hope Is Built."